All right, good morning, everyone. Good morning. My name is Jared, and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill, and I just want to say welcome. We're glad that you guys are here this morning. We're glad that you chose to to gather and worship with us, whether you're gathering in person or whether you're joining us on the live stream. Uh, We're excited to be together today. Um, We're excited that that we can join together uh, through the Holy Spirit under, um, under the umbrella of the body of Christ, and it is a joy to gather as the church. Um, I want to start us off with just a couple of quick announcements, and we'll mention these again at the end. Uh, but there's, a, there's some books in the back, for those of you that are here, uh, there's, a, there's a stack on the back table. This is a book called Gentle and Lonely, and Gen- not Lonely, Gentle and Lowly uh, by Dane Ortland. And um, there, we announced this last week that there's copies in the back, just to answer a couple of questions, because I think there was some confusion about are we reading this together as a church? Like, are our missional communities supposed to be reading this? Like, did we buy all these copies and, and hand them out? Like, what's going on with this book? Um, we didn't purchase these, so the publisher was generous enough to actually uh, offer multiple copies to churches that wanted to take them up on it. And so we said, free resources, why not? Uh, so they actually sent us for free 100 copies of this book. And so that's, that's how we got them. So there are some missional communities that may be taking the opportunity with the, with the free resource to say, hey, let's just spend time uh, reading through this. Uh, you're free to, to read it on your own if you're in a missional community that's not taking a part of that. Um, so we just wanted to be able to provide it as a resource because it was provided to us for free. And so we wanted to pass it along to you guys. So if you didn't get a copy of this last week, uh, there's still plenty of copies in the back. Uh, so we want uh, everyone, that's, um, everyone that's able, uh, just grab a copy for yourself. So um, be sure and do that. You got a newsletter this week. Hopefully, if you didn't, come find me afterwards and we can be sure that you get it. But uh, we sent out a MailChimp newsletter that has some information on the Saturate the South event that's coming up next month. Um, so in that newsletter, there's actually a link that you can register. And there's also a... Um, a, a coupon code, essentially, that gets you a discount. Uh, so that coupon code, it's, don't, don't tell anybody, it's a secret code, but it's, it's SOMA family, all lowercase, squished together. So SOMA family. So that's the, the code that gets you a discount. So go online, follow the link in that email, go online and uh, register for that event. So we're excited about that happening next month. On that same note, um, if you don't want to pay anything at all to be there, there's an opportunity for that as well. Uh, We need eight volunteers just to help staff that event. Um, Samantha in the back is kind of leading that up. We have four volunteers already, so we need four more. So if you're interested in being a part of that and being on that volunteer team and serving for that weekend, please see Samantha. She'll be in the back, so grab her before you leave and get signed up for that. And if you volunteer, then, then there's no fee to actually be a part of that weekend. So it's a good deal for those of you that want to volunteer. So, all right, I'm going to invite you guys to stand with me, and we're going to kick things off with a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father, you are good, and God, we, um, God, we're grateful just to, to be able to be here today. And God, I, I know that we all come from so many different places, and God, we, we all have so many things that weigh heavily on our hearts. And God, many of us have, have family members who are sick or suffering. God, many of us um, come into this room with our own various weights of this life. And God, as we gather this morning, Father, we pray that 
uh, that God, your spirit would just draw us close to yourself. God, we pray that, that our hearts would just be on fire for your kingdom and for your name. That God, we could, uh, that God, we could know you more. God, through our time here, God, as we sing songs about who you are and your goodness and your love towards us, and God, as we hear your word taught, God, may we see, God, as, as Paul wrote in, in Philippians, God, the, the overwhelming worth of knowing you, God, that you are of greater value than everything this world has to offer. God, remind us this morning of your value and your worth. It's in the name of Jesus we ask these things. Amen. If you would turn your, turn your eyes to the screen with me as we read together, you can read it as well with me. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4. Before we do this, I want to remind us, we're not here to just go through the motions, but we're here to wholeheartedly worship God together. So I want to encourage you to sing out, even though you've got that shield right there in front of you keeping your sound from getting further than a few inches from in front of you, but I want to hear you this morning. Let's read 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. If you would just take a moment, I want you to think about uh, some of the heavy things that have been going on within this last week, this last month. Um, we've got all these things happening in Afghanistan, the Delta variant, um, friends losing loved ones to sickness. Um, we've got war, famine, and all the different sins within our own lives. I just want you to take a moment and think about those things within your own context. Um, and then I'll ask you to do something physical. I want you to hand those things off to God. And just physically put your hands out. I want you to hand that burden. Because it says in Matthew, come to me all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I want God to take that burden from you just like he does. So I want you to hand those burdens off to him and know that you can wholeheartedly let go of those things. God is there for you. God loves you. Let's pray together for just a moment. Heavenly Father, we want to lift up these things, these heavy, awful things that go on within our world. God, you don't promise that being your follower is easy. You don't promise that it is, um, it is something that just is a snap of a finger. But God, we aren't here to do work for you. We're here to love you. We're here broken before you. The next song we sing talks about being at your feet and, and just loving you wholeheartedly. And God, we just want to lift up all the different things that are going on in our world today. In your name I pray. Amen. In 1 John, it talks about an assurance of pardon. 
uh, if you'll read it with me. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for our, ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him. And if we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but not, does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may, not, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the way in which he walked. And it will continue in verse 12. I am writing to you, <clears throat> little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Amen. We're going to do a new song this morning. Like I mentioned, it, it talks about being at his feet. It's, a, it's an image of being there with Jesus and how it's, it is a holy moment. And you don't want to leave it. You want to just sit there and worship him forever. If you would be seated. Uh, preschool will be headed out to the preschool room. Elementary kids, we've got a, a little bit of a change. We're going to do a kid's video. So if you'll turn your eyes to the screen, that video will play in just a moment. The captain of the hunt. The air was warm and still. Let's go across the lake, Jesus said to his friends. Jesus had been helping people all day, and now he was tired. So they left the crowds at the shore and set out in a small fishing boat. Jesus climbed into the boat to take a nap. As soon as his head touched the pillow, he fell fast asleep. It was a beautiful evening. A gentle breeze rustled the sails. The friends were chatting happily as they headed out into the middle of the lake. Everything was perfect, just right for a nice, quiet sail. They were only about halfway across when, out of nowhere, whirling winds swept across the lake, fierce and strong like a hurricane. A blinding flash of lightning lit up the sky. Thunder roared right overhead. The storm blew the water into towering waves that hurled the little boat up, 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 and then sent it hurtling, crashing back down, down, down. The fishing boat was blown and buffeted and tossed and turned back and forth, up and down, left and right, round and round. And in the middle of the storm, Jesus was sleeping. 
Now, Jesus' friends had been fishermen all their lives, but in all their years, fishing on this lake, they had never once seen a storm like this one. No matter how hard they struggled with their ropes and sails, they couldn't control their boat. This storm was too big for them. But the storm wasn't too big for Jesus. Help! they screamed. Wake up! Quick, Jesus! Jesus opened his eyes. Rescue us! Save us! they shrieked. Don't you care? Of course Jesus cared. And this was the very reason he had come, to rescue them and to save them. Jesus stood up and spoke to the storm. Hush! he said. That's all. And the strangest thing happened. The wind and the waves recognized Jesus' voice. Well, they had heard it before, of course. It was the same voice that made them in the very beginning. They listened to Jesus and they did what he said. Immediately, the wind stopped, the water calmed down. It glittered innocently in the moonlight and lapped quietly against the side of the boat as if nothing had happened. The little boat bobbed gently up and down. There was a deep stillness and a great quiet all around. Then Jesus turned to his wind-torn friends. Why were you scared? he asked. Did you forget who I am? Did you believe your fears instead of me? Jesus' friends were quiet, as quiet as the wind and the waves, and into their hearts came a different kind of storm. What kind of man is this? they asked themselves anxiously. Even the winds and the waves obey him, they said, because they didn't understand. They didn't realize yet that Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus' friends had been so afraid they had only seen the big waves. They had forgotten that if Jesus was with them, then they had nothing to be afraid of, no matter how small their boat or how big the storm. I invite you guys to pray with me. Father, we thank you for the truth in that story. God, that... You say hush to the, to the storms, and God, even the wind and the waves obey. And God you, God, you say hush to the storms in our life as well. God, you bring peace and you bring joy. God, even in the midst of, of pain and suffering and heartache, God, we can look to you. And God, we find hope. God, even in a, in a broken and dark world that is full of storms. And Father, we know that many of us face storms in our own lives. God, many of us, even, even this week, God, facing just so many storms. Um, Father, I want to pray specifically for, uh, for Robert's family, for Robert Turnage, and God, as he lost his aunt uh, yesterday to, to a COVID-related um, illness, and God, I know that Robert has lost multiple family members. Robert and Samantha, God, both of their families have just been hit hard, God, with this illness. And God, I know that Robert has a niece who's in the hospital now. And God, we pray for healing for her. God, we pray that, uh, that her, her vitals would stay steady and improve. And God, we pray that uh, she'd be able to come home from the hospital. And God, that, uh, that you would just use, God, even this experience, God, just to draw 
her close to yourself, that God, ultimately, that you would be glorified and you would be made known, God, even in the midst of suffering. Father, I love the the song that we just sang, the one we finished with, that said, um, God, more than anything that you can do, God, we just want you. And God, we also confess that we oftentimes don't feel that way. That God, we, we do want the blessings. And God, we do want, um, God, we want the, the genie in the bottle, God, that we can come to with our wants and our desires and our wishes. God, more than we just simply want you. God, we confess that, God, that is sinful and selfish on our part. God, bring us back Back to the beginning, God, when, when you are enough. God, help us to see that, that you are enough. God, may our hearts desire and long for you alone. God, nothing more. God, no, nothing that you can just do for us. God, no, no blessing in this life. That God, may you be enough for us. And God, you are enough. God, you are sufficient, God, to satisfy every need and every desire of our hearts. So, Father, this morning, as we gather in your name, God, as we gather, God, in this place, may we be reminded that you are enough. And God, in, in some ways, it's easy for, for us to say that here, but, but God, even Christians in Afghanistan who are being hunted and killed, God, remind them that you are enough. God, you are enough. God, bring peace to their, their hearts and their lives and God, their family members. God, we pray that your, your kingdom, God, would grow and expand, that your church would grow and expand, God, even in the face of persecution. Father, we pray for believers, God, all over the world who, who face hardship because of their belief. God, who face struggle, even death. God, may your peace and your mercy, God, explode in their hearts and in their lives. God, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Good morning, Mercy Hill. Grab a Bible. Turn to Philippians chapter 1 while you're turning there. If you're a guest who's here today, we want to say welcome. So glad that you're worshiping with us. My name's Brad. I'm one of the elders here. Grateful to get to study God's Word with you. Find comfort in His Word. Find direction in His Word. We're in the book of Philippians. It's just the second week. And I bet there's been a moment in your life where you faced some type of crisis, whether it was at work or personally, where you thought to yourself, I have no idea how I'm going to get this accomplished. I, know I have no idea how I'm going to meet this deadline. I have no idea how I'm going to get this amount of work done in the, in the amount of time that I have. And you either had volunteers or friends who showed up, or maybe if it's at work, you just realized that, like, I need help, and you asked for help. Maybe you delegated some things. And there was a moment when that day came together and it all happened. And you're like, this really worked. This really, teamwork made all the difference. Can you think of a moment like that in your life where you doubted and ultimately it was the team that made all the difference? We, we say that 
a lot at our house that teamwork makes the dream work and our kids hate it because it's usually around things like cleaning bathrooms um, or vacuuming the house or cleaning up after the pets. Like, yeah, guys, wasn't that awesome? Like, teamwork makes the dream work. They, they usually grunt. We have teenage boys. Um, but in this passage of Scripture, Paul is, we see some elements of just incredibly healthy team chemistry that's operating at the church in Philippi. And I want to just read, we're just looking at verses 3 through 7 today. So if you would, uh, join me, follow along as, as I read, beginning in verse 3. Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the, de in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. There's three elements I want to look at of teamwork that we see at the church in Philippi here. And the first is that partnership produces joy. Partnership produces joy. Look at verses 3 through 5. Paul begins with thanksgiving. And this is the sunniest of all of Paul's letters. And he begins with thanksgiving and gratitude that fuel his prayers. It's been 10 years since he planted the gospel and God began to grow his church in Philippi. And Paul, as we looked at last week, he's praying from prison. And we're going to see what he's praying for in verses 9 through 11. We'll look at that next week. But Paul begins praying joyfully. And he's praying joyfully because of his partnership that he shares with other believers that has created this healthy church in Philippi. Now, it's not a perfect church, as there is no perfect church. And that's something that's important for us to realize is we're citizens in the kingdom of God that there is no such thing as a perfect church in the moment. I always say the moment that you find one, it won't be as soon as you join. Because we're not perfect. And Paul alludes to that in chapter 4 verse 2. Doesn't this sound like maybe a church that you grew up in? Eudodia and Seneca need to agree in the Lord. So there are a couple of women who they... There was something that had made its way all the way to Paul in prison. He had heard about the drama going on between a couple of leaders. And so even the church in Philippi, it's not a perfect church. But Paul writes, and he writes with such joy. And his joy that he's speaking of in this moment, he writes of joy in prayer because of their partnership. And so I just want to point out a few things that lead to really good team chemistry within a church. The first is that it's not about a solo leader, but it's about teamwork. It's not about a solo leader. It's about teamwork. Paul finally remembers these believers. It's been 10 years, and he remembers them and the teamwork and partnership that they shared together. But we, on the other hand, we live in a day and an age in which we love to promote personalities and we love to follow men rather than worshiping Jesus and following God. And you know if you're following men or if you're following God, 
when your church experience falls apart or fails, or you're following a leader who falls from grace, do you leave the church or do you find another church? Do you realize that you are the church, that you're part of the kingdom of God, and that we don't follow men, but that we follow God? When we end up like we oftentimes have done in the West, in which men, we love to follow men. I think part of the reason why is that it's just easier. It's easier to promote a man or a, man or a brand or a particular church. And then you just support them and leave them to hire all the people that are needed on staff to do the work. And then you can just kind of show up in between, you know, Sundays and, and maybe give a little bit here and there. But the gospel calls for all of our life. And it's not a Sunday gospel. It's an everyday gospel. And men love to receive your praise because leadership unchecked always leads to grandiosity. It's no different in the church than it is in the world. Leadership unchecked always leads to grandiosity. Some of you are, uh, you work in the healthcare industry and you work around doctors and you know exactly what I'm talking about. That leadership unchecked always leads to grandiosity. And so the kingdom of God is not about a solo leader. It's about teamwork. But when we make it about a particular person or a particular brand or church, we produce these great church enterprises that are run like businesses. And they often fail to make disciples. Instead, they produce consumers. And so we have to ask the question when we look at what it means to be part of the church. We have to ask the question, and I think it begs the question, if we're part of a church that's run like an enterprise or run like a business that produces mainly consumers, then it begs the question, can we even claim to be a church? Can we even claim to be Christians if what the church is producing is consumers? Because if you look at Philippians 2, we'll get to Philippians 2 verses 1 through 11 pretty soon, and you see this moment in which Jesus humbles himself, that he empties himself in order that he would come and that he would serve. And so we see that Philippians points to Jesus as the suffering servant, came in humility, counted others more important, more significant than, than himself. Paul says that healthy team leadership is about it's not about a solo leader. It's about teamwork within the church. Notice how Paul addresses saints. That's everybody. Elders. Deacons. They're a team together all week long. And when that happens, there's no worship war. There's, there's no fighting over the color of carpet. Because they realize that we are in a war. And that heaven and hell are at stake. And that there's something so much more important than the physical realm. Which we spend so much of our time in. Now, not only does Paul point out that it's not about a solo leader, but it's about teamwork. We also see that it's not about a specific church, but it's about the gospel. Paul's most likely writing to several churches that are in Philippi. And, and Paul's primarily focused on the advance of the gospel. He is unhindered by his arrest, by his hardship, by the trauma that he's, his life has been through over the years, by the beatings. And his life is a reflection of the grace that's been shown him and the passion that's resulted from that. So 
good chemistry in the church is not about a solo leader. It's about teamwork. It's not about a specific church. It's about the gospel. And it's not about taking, but it's about serving. I'm going to say this again. It's not about taking, but it's about serving. I think there's ultimately really only two types of people in every church. Those who primarily see themselves as consumers, they show up to take. They consume. Versus those who see themselves as servants. And they see that God has called them to sacrifice as they follow Jesus. How could we possibly, sacri- how could we possibly follow Jesus and think that being a consumer plays any role in that life? Find one place in Jesus' life where he modeled being a consumer. No. Jesus was a servant. He was the greatest servant of all. So which are you? As you look at Paul's letter to the Philippians. As he's praying with his heartfelt joy. Because of the partnership that he has. It's been 10 years since he started the church. He's in prison and he's praying with joy. Because he has such fond memories of these individuals. These people. This church. Which are you? Are you a taker? Are you one who's a servant? It's always easier to be sarcastic and cynical than to lead toward a solution. And over the years, I've learned that people who love to just play devil's advocate and people who love to be sarcastic and cynical and that's their kind of go-to, I don't give them much of my time. I'm not saying that I cut them off from relationship or that I'm not kind to them. But I'm not going to invest a ton of my time and energy in trying to lead them or train them or equip them or disciple them. Because it's always easier to play devil's advocate. It's always easier to armchair quarterback. But leaders are born out of individuals who are looking for solutions. Who are seeing that God is always at work. And they've centered their lives around following him no matter what the cost Because they know that joy is found in the sacrifice of following Jesus. So Paul shows us that, man, partnership produces joy. Secondly, he shows us that that Paul here is, he's modeling a prayer-filled life. Look at what he says. I thank my God, in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Prayer should characterize the life of every believer. And Paul is showing us some of the value of what our heart is like when prayer characterizes our lives. You know, prayer is given to all the saints. We don't go to an earthly priest for prayer. We don't go to confession or absolution. We don't We go to our high priest, King Jesus. And as we go to him, we should pray for others. It should be a daily part of our lives. Praying for others enables us to take our eyes off our own problems, our own difficulties, our own issues and anxieties. And one of the problems, I think, within the Western church is that the Western church is filled with what my parents would probably call navel gazers. You can think on that one if you're young and you've never heard that term before. But um, navel gazers. So we're so focused on ourselves. We're so focused on our needs. We're consumers. 
If you merely show up to a building on a Sunday that you call the church and you go inside and you look at the back of people's heads who are sitting in front of you and then maybe you spend five minutes afterwards talking to people and, and then you're on your way to Sunday lunch, you aren't really gathering with the church. I mean, you've shown up for an event, but to be the church, I mean, if, if that characterizes your life as a Christian then you'll have no idea how to pray for others because you won't know what their needs are. And the church will oftentimes become all about you and your needs. And you'll leave demanding that the church didn't do enough for you. We're so focused oftentimes on ourselves in the West because I think we really struggle to live in community with one another. And this is one of the reasons why you say, you know, if it's Tuesday night or Wednesday night or Monday night or whatever night your, your missional community meets, when we, meet, we meet in small groups and homes, if you're really struggling with like, man, I'm just tired today from work. Um, you know, is this really that important? Like, uh, we're not quite starting a curriculum yet. or I don't, Is it really that big of a deal? The answer is yes. It's a huge deal. You can't follow Jesus without living in community. Because if you're not in community, you will make Christianity all about yourself. And there is no way to follow Jesus if Christianity is all about yourself. Because Jesus never modeled that. So community is so significant for us. We learn the ways of Jesus in community. And I think for many of us in the West, we really struggle to slow down. And so we really struggle to value community. <clears throat> And we buy into the lie that technology and the world and that the things that are physical are going to make our life easier. And we just, there is a constant new rendition of it over and over again. I saw this last week, I didn't click on the article, but Elon Musk had a new, like, some type of Android robot that had the same navigational system in it that the Tesla cars have. And I just, I just giggled at the sub, at like the, the summary of the article, it said that in the future, Elon Musk predicts that we'll have to decide how much physical labor we actually want to engage in because robots are going to be doing most of the physical labor for us. And I giggled. I'm like, yeah, just like back in what, the 50s or the 60s, there was a subcommittee as the as computers, you know, the internet was, was like years down the road, but computers were here. And uh, this Senate subcommittee, someone testified and said the greatest problem that Americans will have is what to do with our work week because it's going to be diminished to about 15 to 20 hours a week because of technology. That didn't happen. Like, we buy into this lie that the more things that the world has to offer, the more technology and culture and physical that's around us, that the, the easier life will be, the happier life will be, the more joy-filled life will be. And it's just not the case. It's not the case. I think that we have to look at Jesus' life, and if we're going to follow Jesus, we've got to live like him. And I'm saying this to myself, like we have to slow down. I'm not saying we have to ride a donkey or sail in a ship, but that's about the fastest that Jesus ever moved. And I think that there is something to be said for slowing down and learning what it means to be with Jesus. 
And to realize that all the things around us that we think are going to satisfy life and finally get life back to this place that's manageable, they aren't working. Only Jesus brings us joy. Only Jesus truly satisfies. I think that... um, Last, I just want to end really quick. I want to give us some time to pray. Last, we see that grace produces certainty. Look at verses 6 through 7. Grace produces certainty. Paul writes and he says, And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment And in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Grace produces certainty. I haven't quite unpacked yet. I needed more time to study than just this last week. But verse 7. I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. How does that work? That Paul sees evidence of God's grace even in his imprisonment that he trusted God to that great of a degree look at what he says he who began a good work in you this should be hugely encouraging to us as followers of Jesus he who began a good work in you that means uh, literally he who began or he who inaugurated a good work within you Just like an American president is just a man. He's just a normal American citizen until the day in which he is inaugurated. And that day he becomes the most powerful man in the United States. Some would beg to argue maybe the most powerful man in the world. And in that same way of inaugurating, Paul is saying that all followers of Jesus who've come to God through repentance and belief, that it's God's work that has inaugurated this in their life. It's God who has begun this work in their life. And the tense of the verb that he uses here is decisive and deliberate. He says it's a decisive act on God's part. It's not impulsive. It's not imperfect. But it's something that's planned and that it's executed to perfection. That God who began a good work in us is going to complete it. It should bring us joy. So important that we understand that it's God who began this good work. That, that phrase, that he who began a good work. It's the same verb. The only other time it's used in the New Testament is used in Galatians 3.3. 3. And this will be a familiar verse to you as Paul writes to the Galatians. And he says, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit that you're now being perfected by the flesh? That same word of begun, Paul is speaking back to the fact that it's God who began this work in you. So let me illustrate it for you real quick and encourage you. If you look at Acts 16 verse 31, and we looked at this story last week. Acts 16 verse 31. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. This is Paul and Silas speaking to the Philippian jailer. They're presenting the gospel to him. And so that's how Paul presents the gospel to him. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. But back up to Acts chapter 16 verse 14. And see on the other hand 
how Luke reports that God was at work to open Lydia's heart, which had just taken place previous to this. Acts 16, 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So from our perspective, we tell people, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. From God's perspective, God opens their heart in order that they can pay attention to what God is saying and that they can believe. It is God who has begun a good work in us. If you want to understand that even more, flip over to Ephesians 1 and listen to these words. In verses 4 through 5, Paul writes, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. That means that we can be certain that we're in Christ. That it's God's idea. That there is, there's no sin. That there is no sadness. That there is no struggle that can separate us from God. And from the work that God began and the work that he will accomplish in us. And that produces joy. When we come to understand that this work is certain. And that God will not allow us to fall from his grace. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 through 14. I want to end with this. He says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So yes, we do sin. And yes, Paul is saying that we are more than sinners because of God. That we're children of God. And that we can be certain of our salvation. That it isn't the result of simply choosing Christ. But that Christ has chosen us. And so even in these moments when our will moves from hot to cold. And we're tempted to doubt our salvation. It's then that we can be reminded that it's the will of God to choose us. And that he will finish the work that he has started. And so I started with, you know, a pretty negative take on, on Paul's understanding of teamwork. And how we miss out on it, oftentimes in the West. As you finish and you understand what Paul is saying here about salvation. And what God has started in us. And what he's begun, he's going to finish. The only logical conclusion that I can come to... Is that if we see a church in the West that largely is filled with consumers and takers and not filled with servants, then the question is, have they ever found grace? You ever come to know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? That you would repent and believe. And that you would say, I surrender my life to you. I don't follow you because of my grandmother. Or my grandfather. I don't follow you because of the example set by my parents. I don't follow you because my middle school friends all decided to get baptized. And I thought, doesn't sound like a bad idea. No, I follow you because I've given my heart and my life to you. I've repented of my sins. And through the power of the Holy Spirit at work within me, I've turned and I'm following you, Jesus, with all of my life. 
you've never repented of your sins and come to know Jesus, I'd love to tell you more. There's people who are finding Jesus here at Mercy Hill. And I know this is just kind of a scattering of us today. About half of our church is missing with sickness and school starting back. I don't know what it is about church in the South. Everybody doesn't really show back up until after Labor Day for some reason. But even within this small group of people who are here, people are finding Jesus. Georgia was just baptized a couple of weeks ago and there's someone else in our congregation. I'm going to let them share with you on their own terms. But they've come to know Jesus. I'm so excited. We've been praying for them. And uh, they will be baptized soon. And maybe Jesus is calling you today that you would repent of your sins and that you would come to know Him. Love to talk to you. I'll be in the back. As we end today, uh, I want to invite us to practice what Paul has laid out for us here. Um, Paul is modeling Caring for others more than he cares for himself. And it seems like as he does that, he's able to not be so focused on his own circumstances and his imprisonment. And he's able to find great joy in the gospel. And great joy in the, in the memory of the partnership he has and the partnership that continues in Philippi. And so I want to invite us today. We always end our service worshiping together through communion. Today, as we worship together through communion, uh, I want to invite us to pray for some different groups of people. So I want to invite us first and foremost to pray for Afghanistan and to pray for that nation. If you say, how can we pray for that nation? Well, the first thing that we can do is that we can lament. Uh, godly lament, we can lament because we know the hope that's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we are the most equipped of anyone in the world to actually enter into sorrow and to take sorrow on and to grieve with those who grieve because we know the hope that's found not in our physical circumstances but in the gospel of Jesus. And if you say, how do we pray for those who are in Afghanistan? We would first begin by praying for our enemies. So we pray for the Taliban that they were, God can save them. They're just like Paul. God can turn their lives around. We pray for our own government and our own administration that God would give them and other NATO leaders wisdom to know how to move forward as thousands of lives are on the line, as people try to get out of this country. We pray for those who are seeking to get out of this country. We pray for those who are Christians that God would give them boldness and that God would use what we see as it's just a horrible situation in order to bring him glory. It's in moments like Afghanistan that the church has always grown and flourished. It's never been in moments like we find in the West. Like you and I live in today. The blood of the martyrs has always been the seat of the church. And so we can pray for Afghanistan. I also would ask that we pray for Haiti. I think the death toll is over 2,200 now. Uh, Haiti is close to my heart. I was there 10 weeks after the earthquake in 2010 and saw the devastation and know what that country was like. And Haitian believers there are struggling and we, we should pray for them. We should pray for aid workers who are desperate for resources. We pr should pray for those people that God would minister to them in their need. And finally, Ethiopia. I don't know if you've kept up with Ethiopia, but Haiti and Ethiopia are near to my heart because I have children who are from both of those countries, been to both of those countries. 
And Ethiopia's been in a civil war since November of 2020, and it's complex. There's atrocities on both sides, and there's over 100,000 children who are facing malnutrition now in the northern part of Ethiopia, in the Tigray region. And so we pray for them. We pray for civil war to come to an end. Uh, we pray for famine that is taking place there. We pray for malnourished uh, moms who are giving birth to malnourished children. And uh, we pray for peace in that region. We pray for church leaders. Those are ways that we can pray. So I'm going to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, um, you don't have to be a member of this church in order to remember the beauty of the gospel and the forgiveness and the, and the reconciliation that we have to God. So there's, there's little communion packets that are at the end of each of your pews. We invite all those who are followers of Jesus to worship with us in communion. There's going to be five little circles that are going to form up. Five little missional communities. If you're not part of a missional community or today is the first day that you've worshipped with us, just find a circle that's near you and they'll, they'll welcome you and uh, let you know what you need to do. So we're going to split up now and um, worship together through communion. Um, we're going to pray together for these nations and then the, the band will come up and we'll finish with one last song. As we bring our time of prayer to an end, I just want to end with Jesus' words. As, as we continue to pray for these people throughout the week, and as we struggle to know what to pray, we pray as Jesus prayed. And He opened His mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. All right. Thank you guys again for joining us today. Just a quick reminder of the couple of announcements we mentioned at the beginning. If you don't have a copy of Gentle and Lowly, uh, grab a copy. It's on the table to my left and your right towards the back of the room. So grab one before you leave today. Uh, Saturate the South event is coming up on September 18th. Uh, you should have received an email for that where you can register and there's a, a coupon code where you can get a discount. Uh, so if you did not receive that email, uh, you can come find me after the service and I'll forward you the email that I got. So just give me your email. We'll be sure you get it. So sign up for that and register. We still need four volunteers. Samantha in the back. Raise your hand, Samantha. Samantha is uh, getting all of our volunteers together. So we needed eight. We've got four, so we still need four more. Uh, so again, you don't have to pay the registration fee if you volunteer to serve at the weekend. So if you're interested in that, grab Samantha after the service and she'll get you signed up. So thank you guys again for joining us today. We've got a benediction this morning found in Revelation chapter 5, verse 11 through 13. I'm going to ask you guys to extend your hands and receive this. 
says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Thanks again for joining us. You guys are dismissed.